The first reading this morning is from Micah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord is a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up, up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Second reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thank you, Margaret, and also Nigel for leading our opening worship. I'm going I'm to break a promise uh, that I made you. I said I'd stop going on about our, our trip to Palestine, but I, I do just have to mention that we were at the Mount of Beatitudes by Galilee, 
And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the signs that they have there, they have these various security signs, you know, you're not allowed to, to bring food there and have picnics and don't do this, do do that, those kinds of signs. And uh, the, the sign at the, the Mount of Beatitudes has a number of these kind of icons and it's don't bring your soft drinks in, don't bring your food in, don't bring your guns in. So I thought I'd just leave with you the fact that the Mount of Beatitudes has a please leave your gun at the gate policy to it. Um, in Monty Python's memorable take on the Sermon on the Mount, in the wonderful film, The Life of Brian, we get to see the response to Jesus' preaching by those who are kind of stood around at the back of the crowd, barely able to hear the preacher in the distance on the hilltop, misunderstanding him to great comic effect. Uh, if you haven't seen this film for a while, I, I do commend it to you. Um, and, and the exchange at the back of the crowd as the Sermon on the Mount is happening includes everything from blessings on cheesemakers rather than peacemakers to the discovery that it is the meek and not the Greek who shall inherit the earth. Which, as Mrs Bignose points out, well that's nice, isn't it? Because the meek have a hell of a time. After a brief fight, uh, the characters agree to head off to catch a stoning, which as they uh, leave, one of the Jewish revolutionaries is heard to mutter, well, blessed is just about anyone with a vested interest in the status quo, as far as I can tell, to which his friend replies, yeah, well, what Jesus blatantly fails to appreciate is that it's the meek who are the problem. And I suspect it was ever thus, that those at the back of the crowd are ideologically as well as geographically distant from the voices at the centre. And of course what the Python team have intuitively picked up on in their version of the Sermon on the Mount is something that we see throughout Matthew's Gospel, which is that it is only some people, it is just a few who get the truth of the message, who understand what it is that Jesus is proclaiming, whereas others, the majority, are distant from him and react badly to what they think they have heard. Matthew's Gospel is very much a Gospel of in and out. There's the in crowd who get it and the people on the margins who just don't. This is almost certainly a reflection of the situation facing the community of early Christians that Matthew is writing for some 40 years after the time of Jesus, maybe 50 years later, where those in small struggling congregations of Jesus followers, just, you know, 10 or 20 people gathered together, were finding that most of those with whom they were trying to share the good news of Jesus were disinterested at best and more often than not actively hostile to the challenge that the message of Jesus brought to their world and worldview. And so Matthew gives his readers the Sermon on the Mount, this set piece sermon of Jesus sayings. And its memorable opening lines are now known as the Beatitudes. And what Matthew is trying to do in this sermon that he features near the beginning of the Gospel is to succinctly capture the force and energy of the preacher on the hilltop. 
whose voice continued to echo down the decades to Matthew's own time, offering comfort and challenge in equal measure to any who would dare take the time to listen. And I suggest it has ever been thus. Radical Jesus following has always been something of a minority sport. And I would suggest that those times where Christianity has done its deal with power to get its message heard more widely have always, in the end, resulted in a dilution of the message of Jesus, away from its radical core that we find here in the Sermon on the Mount and expressed succinctly in the Beatitudes. You see, the problem is that in any form of Christendom, any form of alliance between church and state, whether we're talking the Russian Orthodox Church at the moment, failing to take a stand against the occupation of Ukraine, whether we're talking the collusions of the Catholic Church with the Spanish Empire and the evils of the Spanish Inquisition and all the conquests that went with that, whether we're talking about in our own country collusion between the state church and the powers that be, whenever that happens, the Beatitudes become a blessing, as Monty Python so memorably put it, on just about anyone with a vested interest in the status quo. And the heart of Jesus's message gets lost once again as his words get appropriated to justifying the very thing they were uttered to critique. And the problem is as real for us today as it was for Matthew's community in the first century. The Beatitudes of Jesus are all too easily reduced to the platitudes of Jesus. Statements of revolutionary challenge become aphorisms of anodyne comfort. Do you remember watching Donald Trump's inauguration? Goodness me, what a moment that was in history. At it, Reverend Samuel Rodriguez read the Beatitudes. And it seems to me that sat satire was no longer possible at that moment because the inaugural speech of Jesus' ministry was being set in such stark contrast to the inaugural presidential speech that followed it. And yet, I suspect for many of those listening who may well seek to re-elect Trump again at the next election, see in that particular power of presidential being a voice that actually they believe speaks for Jesus. The radical revolutionary message of Jesus is all too easily domesticated to powerful agendas. And we need to take care to find ways of hearing it afresh, lest we too miss the demands that it makes on our own lives. And just whilst we're at it, what does this blessed word blessed mean anyway? I mean, it's all very well asserting that the meek and the mourning are blessed. But one has to wonder what earthly use that is to the person crippled by grief or too timid to speak out. A few years ago, in an attempt to get to the heart of the Beatitudes, I thought I'd have a go at re-rendering them. I can remember the afternoon I spent doing this, and it's, it's one of those little things, you know, you, you write things occasionally, well, you do if you're me, and they take on a bit of a life beyond you. 
Um, this is one of the most quoted things I've ever done, and it was, uh, it, it was written over about two hours and a pint of beer in the local Weatherspoons. So, hey, that's the way it goes sometimes. Anyway, I created a paraphrase of the Beatitudes, and you may well have read it. It's on a poster in the foyer. Um, I'm going to read it again for you now as we re-engage with these words of Jesus. I want to make it clear I'm not rewriting Jesus's words. I'm offering a reflection on the words of Jesus as Matthew gives them to us. Uh, I'm inviting this to help engage with them in new ways. I don't think I'm sufficient to be able to truly paraphrase scripture. This is, this is a reflection on it. Blessed are those who refuse the lie that one life is worth more than any other, for theirs is the future of humanity. Blessed are those who have stared long into the abyss, for theirs is honesty beyond grief. Blessed are those who resist retaliation, for the earth will never be won by force. Blessed are those who would rather die for truth than live with compromise, for the truth will outlive all lies. Blessed are those who forgive the unforgivable, for they've seen the darkness of their own souls. Blessed are those who know themselves truly, for they have seen themselves as God sees them. Blessed are those who are provocatively non-violent, for they're following the path of the Son of God. Blessed are those who choose to receive violence but not to give it, for the future is born out of such choices. Blessed are you when you stand up for truth and hell itself decides to try and destroy you. You're not the first and you won't be the last. I'm telling you now, nothing makes any sense unless you learn to see it differently and then choose to live that alternative into being. So just for a few minutes now, I'm going to reflect on the Beatitudes using my reflection on them as a way through that for us. And firstly, I wonder what it does mean to be blessed. I mean, it's not a word we use a lot, really. Uh, at least not in its archaic form, of two syllables with an accent over the second E, blessed. It has resonances of Shakespeare and the King James Bible. And its modern pronunciation of blessed has lost much of its depth of meaning in contemporary usage, often uh, reduced to a vague assertion of feeling fortunate. I'm blessed to have you as my friend for example. And it's further popular rendering as just bless has robbed it of almost all meaning, becoming little more than a kind of patronising response to someone who's tried but failed to do anything worthwhile. Look at that drawing she's done. Bless. Let's recover blessed. I wonder if we can find a way to bring it back to relevance, to rediscover the force of what Jesus was doing by proclaiming a blessing on the meek and the mournful and the merciful. In the Jewish religious context of the first century, one of the great theological debates was that of who was worthy to receive the blessing of God. 
the Jews held that they were God's chosen people, called from among the nations and blessed by God with the gift of a special relationship with him. But within this general calling and blessing of Israel, there was a further level of disparity between those who were regarded as blessed and those who were not. And there was much discussion in ancient Israel as to what God's blessing looked like when you had it. If you think that the prosperity gospel of health and wealth is a new phenomenon and unique to Christianity, then think again, because the ancient Jews got there first. There was a school of thought in ancient Israel that held that if you were obedient to the covenant, you would experience the blessings of God as a reward for your faithfulness. These blessings might be financial, or they might be related to health or family life, so, you know, having lots of children. It's not quite touch the screen and you're going to be healed that some of the notorious American televangelists have peddled, but it comes from a similar place in terms of seeing God's blessings as linked to human obedience and sacrifice. And so we end up with modern health, wealth and prosperity teaching, which you can find in some churches here in London. Give us a certain amount of your money and God will give it back to you tenfold over. You may have come across that sort of theology. We do it, God responds. It's a mechanistic transaction of God's blessing. Jesus wasn't the first to challenge this idea. The book of Job, for example, is an extended piece of theological reflection on why bad things happen to good people, questioning where God is in the face of human suffering. These are not new questions. And we get it in the prophet Micah, which we heard in, who we heard from in our first reading this morning, questioning the nature of the sacrifice that God might require in order for God's blessings to be dispensed. Micah asked, Shall I come before the Lord with burnt offerings? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And the answer that Micah hears from God is radical. He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And it is in this tradition of Micah and Job that Jesus started proclaiming God's blessing on the very people who others would seek to exclude from receiving it. Many voices told people that their vulnerability was a curse from God. Jesus told them that it was a blessing. And so, blessed are those who refuse the lie that one life is worth more than any other, for theirs is the future of humanity. This really is 
the great lie. It is the great deceit of Satan. Because the moment any one of us starts to believe that one life is more precious to God than any other, then the door is opened for all manner of evil to take root and flourish. And against this, the radical message of Jesus was to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those with poverty of spirit. As Jesus put it, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The blessing of heaven is on those with an uninflated view of their own self-importance. It is to those who know that any value they have in life comes from God and not from any achievement or status that they may hold or achieve. And yet so many of the messages of our society fly in the face of true poverty of spirit. From the advertiser's mantra that you're worth it to fevered assertions of America or indeed any nation first. And the nationalistic protectionism that comes from a mindset of my country right or wrong. Friends, we need to recover a godly sense of our own value and to discover in that the value of those others whom we could so easily diminish. The challenge continues, blessed are those who have stared long into the abyss, for theirs is honesty beyond grief. Or as Jesus put it, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Bereavement can sap all hope, but there is hope here, that those who have learned to live with great loss may discover through their grief the brutal honesty of human mortality in ways that others will never grasp until it is their turn. The comfort for those who mourn is not won easily or quickly, and it comes through pain and tears. But in a world which despises weakness and which denies the transience of life, the ability to outstare death is a blessing known only to some, and yet it is a great gift that they bring to humanity. We, each of us, in our own way, one day, will look death in the face. And on that day, we will need those who have seen that face before and have learned to live with its reality. And so the challenge continues. Blessed are those who resist retaliation, for the earth will never be won by force. Or as Jesus put it, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We can build walls and missiles to our heart's content, securing our borders with mutually assured destruction and ever more stringent restrictions on movement. We can make our pacts and alliances, we can stand in solidarity with countries of like mind, we can love NATO or hate it, but says Jesus, the earth, the earth does not belong to those with guns or missiles. It belongs to the meek. 
It belongs to those who resist retaliation, to those who will commit themselves to alternatives to the spiraling violence that generates strike after counter-strike. The future belongs to those who will build bridges and not walls, to those who turn swords into plowshares and guns into statues. Should have got our, I should have got our violinist out, shouldn't I? Is he through there? I think he is. Do you know, some of you may not know our violinist. If you haven't met our violinist before, come and have a look at him at the end. Uh, he's made with decommissioned uh, weapons from the Civil War in Mozambique. Uh, it was a Christian aid project called Swords into Plowshares. And he has uh, a brother, a saxophonist, I think, who is in the British Museum. And there is also a throne of guns in the British Museum from the same artist. I think Jesus says that the future belongs to those who will turn swords into plowshares in this blessing. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And friends, we will need great creativity and courage if we are to stand against the prevailing mindset of retaliation. Now, do not hear me wrong. I wrestle with what it is to try and live with nonviolence. And I do not know how I would respond if my country was invaded by an aggressor. But I hear the challenge that violence spirals. And so the challenge continues. Blessed are those who would rather die for truth than live with compromise, for the truth will outlive all lies. Or as Jesus put it, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We live in a world of fake news, alternative facts. We live in a post-truth society where the lie wins the argument as long as it's said loud and, and often enough. We are constantly cajoled and invited to abandon truth and follow the herd. But where in this is righteousness? Where in this is justice? Where in this is truth? Finding truth, seeking righteousness, hungering and thirsting for them are not easy. They are hard, thirsty work. The springs of righteousness are not flowing on every street corner. But we must not abandon the quest and we must resist compromise. And so the challenge continues. Blessed are those who forgive the unforgivable, for they have seen the darkness of their own souls. Or as Jesus put it, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Many years ago now, uh, at, uh, I heard at Greenbelt, the sadly now late Jill Sayward speak. You may remember her, she was um, a victim of the Ealing Vicarage rape attack back in the mid-1980s. Um, her father, Canon Michael Sayward, was, uh, a, a, I think he's still alive actually, an Anglican clergyman. Uh, he wrote the, the hymn we sometimes sing, um, 
which I know, and it's just gone, Christ. Anyway, it'll come back to me. I had it in the tip of my tongue just then. Um, but anyway, the, the family were attacked in the vicarage and uh, Jill was raped. The courage with which she faced the crime that had been done to her and her willingness to intentionally speak language of forgiveness as a path to wholeness had a profound effect on me when I heard her speak about this. And, you know, in my pastoral work, sometimes I speak with those who have been greatly wronged, victims of abuse of all kinds. I have never found it appropriate to tell anyone that they must forgive their abuser. But I have noticed that when someone comes to the conclusion for themselves that the path for them from victimhood lies through the dark valley of forgiveness. Um, I have seen people realise that despite the wrong done to them, they share common humanity with those who persist in doing wrong to others. Something profound can shift in those moments of realisation and a moment of blessing can emerge. And when we think on a global scale, when we bring to mind the terrorist atrocities of all the years, from ISIS to the IRA and beyond. And when we see the historical scars of unforgiveness written across societies and nations, we can begin to see why mercy is a blessing that cuts both ways. And so the challenge continues. Blessed are those who know themselves truly, for they have seen themselves as God sees them. Or as Jesus puts it, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Socrates famously said that an unexamined life is not worth living. And I find myself wondering more and more whether the journey of discipleship in Christ is primarily a journey into the love of God which that takes shape in our lives as we learn to see ourselves not as we want to be seen and not as others see us, but as God sees us. The challenge here, of course, is that God sees us with the unflinching gaze of love. And we so resist the idea of being loved. We live with such suppressed guilt such internalised self-hatred that the idea of being loved, of being truly accepted as we are, as God sees us, is as alien to us as our lost childhoods. And yet God loves us. God loves you. And God forgives you. And when we learn to see ourselves as God sees us, we discover purity in place of pain and we find the face of God in the midst of our complex existences. And the challenge continues because Jesus hasn't finished yet. Blessed are those who are provocatively non-violent for they are following the path of the Son of God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. 
The path of peacemaking is not supposed to be straightforward. It's never just passive pacifism that lays down and dies when confronted with violent oppression. Christ-like non-violence is something more creative, something far more subversive. Jim Gordon, a friend of mine, former principal of the Scottish Baptist College, wrote that the followers of the crucified Lord have a long tradition of resistance through revolutionary hope, love-building hope, perseverance in peace and joy in trumping injustice. And those of us who are watching with concern as violence escalates on the international stage will need to be provocatively non-violent, to take the risks of non-violence, modelled after Gandhi and Martin Luther King and the Christian community based in Bethlehem living under occupation. We can learn from these people if we are to speak out a different Christ-like narrative that others can learn then to live by. And so the challenge continues. Blessed are those who choose to receive violence but not to give it, for the future is born out of such choices. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is a truth that there are many places in the world where the followers of Jesus face persecution because they will not compromise on what they know to be right. And the temptation to turn an experience of persecution into a quest for vengeance is ever before those who have been wronged. Those who make the choice to receive but not give out find themselves walking the path of the cross setting a new direction for those who follow. And so the challenge comes to its conclusion. Blessed are you when you stand up for truth and hell itself decides to try and destroy you. You're not the first and you won't be the last. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, says Jesus. I think that too often Christians have their earth-heaven trajectory the wrong way round. The dawning of the kingdom of heaven is not about us going to heaven. It's about heaven coming to us. We prayed it, didn't we, in the Lord's Prayer just now. Your kingdom come on earth as it is already in heaven. Can you get it? Do you see? Most can't and won't, and that's the truth of it. But those of us who can, those of us who are close enough to the one at the centre to hear his voice and heed his words, we get it. We get the kingdom, and we must then live that kingdom into being. We must live as if it were true until it is true. I'm telling you now, nothing makes any sense unless you learn to see it differently and then choose to live that alternative into being. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus ends the Beatitudes. Thanks be to God.
Thank you, Simon. Having a hymn book with me means I have an index. So Michael Seward's uh, hymn is Christ Triumphant Ever Reigning. Yes. So I have a shameful, rather shameful confession to make, which is that for, for many years I was a good news Bible reader. Don't, don't look down on me. I won't hear a word against it, I have to say, but uh, uh, I know that may diminish me greatly in your sight. But one of the interesting things about the Good News Bible is when it has the Beatitudes, it says, happy are the meek, and happy, which is a, a different translation. I'm going to go over to Tommaso, who is online and ready to lead us in our prayers. Tommaso, hello. Yeah, hello. Good. Let us pray. Great God of the whole earth, we thank you this morning for your plentiful blessings, for your unyielding presence, and for your eternal wisdom that resonates through time. Accustomed as we are in our personal and professional life to applauding success extolling achievements and celebrating victory, we too tend to forget that the message of your son, Jesus Christ, forces us to call into question the false and flawed hierarchies of this world. We too can dismiss the highest virtues as weaknesses or vulnerabilities. We too are often complicit in acts of selfishness, oppression, or cowardice in confronting the evils all around us. We too need to be reminded of the importance of acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with you, O Lord. Loving God, we bring before you this morning our aspirations, our hopes, and our anxieties. For we know that your yoke is easy and that your burden is light. In you, we find rest for our souls and the sense of inner peace we cannot experience anywhere else. May we be able to enjoy the beauty of the creation by breaking down our own prejudices meeting people who may challenge our distorted pictures of heaven and making us aware of the richness, complexity, and diversity of the world that surrounds us. Loving God, we pray for those who are target of hatred and subject to deprivation, often due to our failure to develop better, more humane social systems with a genuine sense of obligation towards one another lying at their core. May we resist the temptation of worshipping material prosperity, treating it as an end in itself rather than as a means. And may we envisage new tools devices and techniques 
to mobilize our unparalleled resources, energies, and talents to the benefit of those who are in need. Loving God, we pray for those who suffer from countless forms of exclusion, discrimination, and marginalization, some of which we do not even notice, even when happening in broad daylight. And when we play some role, directly or indirectly, in keeping them in place. May we realize that we can be blind to injustice, for our understanding of it can be at times too narrow or too self-serving, but also that we can do our bit to counter it whenever it creeps into our communities, individually as well as collectively. Loving God, we pray for those who have been crippled economically, physically, and mentally by the various crises that have been unfolding in recent years. Those who live on the margins, those who feel threatened by poverty, insecurity, and fear. In a world where toughness is key to survival and the strong, are believed to inherit the land. The most fragile human beings are those who must hear your words most loudly and most clearly, O Lord. May we learn to be good messengers and to devise new, more effective strategies to engage with more and more friends as we move forward. Loving God, we finally pray for ourselves. May we be freed from the burdens that have been placed upon us and from the evils that beset us as you are far mightier than those. And yours is the power to include, to alleviate, to heal, and to redeem. Amen. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing. To the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ the Lord, be glory, majesty, power and authority, but before all time and now and forever. Amen.